0: Please remain standing as you are able for the reading of today's scripture from Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to those to see whose voice it was that spoke to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace— And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining with full force. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and see, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now write what you've seen, what is, and what is to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches— and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, a happy new year to each of you. How good it is to be uh, here with you on this, the first Sunday of the new year, and especially on this beautiful, what promises to be a, a spring day today. In uh, midwinter, we welcome each of you, and it's a joy to see you in worship today. We're beginning a new series today called Defying Gravity, and if you recognize those particular words, you know that it comes from a Broadway musical called Wicked, which is sort of the backstory of a story that many of us grew up on called The Wizard of Oz. I've always thought of that as being sort of an apocalyptic story, And apocalyptic literature essentially helps us to see through what is going on to what's really going on. And so it is with this apocalyptic vision called Revelation. Now, some of you are scratching your head this morning because we began with this liturgy that had to do with the Magi and then this odd reading on the first Sunday of the new year. If you know the Christian calendar and most of you do, the liturgical year, today is what day in the life of the church? It's Epiphany. Epiphany is the 12th day of Christmas. It is the conclusion of the Christmas season. By the way, there are only 353 days until Christmas in 2019. Drummers are drumming on the 12th day of Christmas, and we celebrate this day with feasting typically in the liturgical year by the recollection of the Magi, who were essentially astrologers or wise men who came from Persia, from the east to Bethlehem, to worship the baby king. Historians and scholars tell us it was likely two years after the birth of Jesus because Matthew says they came to the house, not to the stable. And their presence, according to Matthew 2, is a clue to the world that this child, born at Christmas, not only will bring salvation to the Jews, he's not simply an ethnic savior, but he's bringing salvation to the Gentiles as well. It's ironic, isn't it, that Matthew concludes his gospel just as he begins by Jesus saying, go into all the world and make disciples. This is a worldwide movement, and you see it at the beginning in Epiphany through these Persian Gentiles who come to celebrate. Of course, Epiphany is also a season connecting Christmas to Ash Wednesday between Advent and Christmas and Lent and recalls the early signs of the true identity of Jesus, like the Magi in Bethlehem, like the boy Jesus at the temple like Jesus' baptism at the Jordan, which we'll celebrate next week, like the wedding party in Cana of Galilee and the calling of the Twelve. So it seems a little peculiar to me to read a page from Revelation during Epiphany. Why on earth would you start at the beginning by thinking about the end? Well, I'm glad you asked, I'm prepared to answer that. We all do it. We all do it, we can't help it. When you start the marathon, you already have a vision in your mind, don't you? Of you crossing the finish line, crossing the tape. In fact, just the mental imaging of that keeps you hydrated, keeps you hopeful in the aches and the pains of the journey. It's the same for those who are trying to get in college. When your acceptance letter arises from your REACH school, from the college of your choice, you can see yourself as soon as you open the mail. You can see yourself walking across the stage, receiving the diploma, receiving your degree. When you exchange rings at an altar like this, you can't help, even during that moment, you imagine children and grandchildren and what it might be like to grow old together and then life happens. And it doesn't always turn out like you envisioned, but the vision itself is imperative. I think that's why the wisdom writer wrote in Proverbs 29, verse 18, where there is no vision, people perish. Or in the church, where there is no vision, people find another perish, don't they? Because vision is so critical. Last week, Sherry and I were in Atlanta. We went to hear our son preach on Sunday. And I have to tell you, as I listened to him, I remembered there were times in his teenage years that we never imagined such a thing happening. And we only hoped that he would wind up being faithful, and he overdid it, and now he's become a Methodist preacher. We wept through the sermon, and we remembered days past. Later on that same day, we met the parents of our daughter's boyfriend. And if you're wondering, yes, he's the same one with whom she got lost in the North Georgia mountains. Lord, have mercy. I gave him a compass for Christmas. <laughs> I gave her a flashlight. And then the next day on Monday, New Year's Eve, we met, we had the privilege of meeting the newest member of our family. I have a picture of our great niece, her name is baby Ella Caroline, six pounds, four ounces. I had the privilege at Northside Hospital in Atlanta of holding that little child in my arms, and I couldn't help but say, she's in the class of 2037, and everybody in the room felt older. (laughs) I, I could just see it. In 2050, she'll have a family of her own, At the turn of the 22nd century, baby Ella will be a grandmother. And here she was, 24 hours old, and I was already imagining her life, the things that she would see and do, the purpose for which she would live. We can't help it. So maybe it's not that unusual after all that in the beginning, on this first Sunday in the new year, that we consider the end at the beginning, the goal, the purpose of our being. I wonder if the Apostle John, many of us believe that the Apostle John wrote this revelation, I wonder if he ever imagined where life would take him. I remember that he first encountered Jesus, he first met the Galilean at a, as a young fisherman at the lake, the Sea of Galilee where John and his brother James, their sons of Zebedee, you remember, were mending their nets, and Jesus came, and they left everything to follow him. They found their life's purpose in the ministry of the gospel, and I wonder if he ever saw himself winding up as an exile in the middle of the Aegean Sea on an island called Patmos, Patmos was the Alcatraz of its day. It was what we might call the Hotel California. You can check in, but you can never leave. And it was reserved for those who were considered a threat to the Roman Empire. I'm not sure that John ever actually saw that coming, although Jesus was very clear about discipleship. He said very clearly in plain English or Aramaic, It includes self-denial, it includes suffering, it includes cross-bearing. But it's hard to envision this when you're in the early stages of a conversion, isn't it? It's hard to imagine this when you're in the early phases of discipleship, the end at the beginning. In the early years of the Christian movement, the gospel, you remember, spread like wildfire. The spirit was moving, the church was increasing, And all kinds of people were coming to Christ, people in Jerusalem, people in Samaria, even people in Asia Minor, or what is today Western Turkey. Paul established churches in the leading cities of Western Turkey, Asia Minor, and John became their pastor. Seven churches there. John served a seven-point charge, if you can believe it, And though things began so well as time passed, following Jesus became kind of risky. The government began to see this little sect as a threat to national security. We know about Nero and the fire, don't we? But do you know about Domitian who came later, ruled between 81 and 96, who forced Christians, forced Christians to participate in Caesar worship. So arrogant was this leader that he insisted on the citizens of Rome addressing him as Lord and God. And they who refused to do so were deemed unpatriotic and enemies of the state. It was getting dangerous to be a disciple, and it still is in many places in the world. I think sometimes that we in the West are either ignorant or in denial about the fact that it is predicted that in 2019 alone that there may be as many as 100,000 Christians who will be martyred this year simply because of their confession in Jesus, 100,000. That there may be as many as 215 million who fear because of their faith across the earth. This is one of the reasons, I think, that our Middle East initiative is so critical right now. The plight of Christians in the first century in Asia Minor, late first century, early second century, can be seen in a historical document that is dated 111 in the Common Era, about 20 years or so after John wrote this revelation. There was a governor named Pliny the Younger. Apparently, he was Pliny Jr. There was an elder who had been sent by Trajan, the emperor, to this area. And there he discovered a number of charges against Christians on the court docket over which he presided. And he wrote a letter to Trajan, the emperor, about these cases. I want to read a couple of paragraphs in the excerpt. I have handled those who have been denounced to me as Christians in the following manner. I asked them whether they were Christians, and those who responded affirmatively, I asked a second and a third time under the threat of the death penalty. If they persisted in their confession, I had them executed on the spot. For whatever it is that they're actually advocating, it seems to me that obstinacy and stubbornness must be punished in any case. Others who labor under this same delusion, but who were Roman citizens, I have designated to be sent to Rome. An unsigned placard was posted in my town, he writes, accusing a large number of people by name. Those who denied being Christian, now or in the past, I thought necessary to release... Since they bowed before our gods, according to the formula I gave them, and since they offered sacrifices of wine and incense before your image, which I had brought in for this purpose, along with the statues of our gods, I also had them curse Christ. It is said that real Christians cannot be forced to do any of these things. Others charged by this accusation at first admitted that they had once been Christians but had already renounced their faith. They had, in fact, been Christians but had given it up, they said, some three years ago, some even earlier, and some as long as 25 years ago, which ironically is about the time that John wrote this vision. It's risky to follow Jesus. This is the context, this is the backdrop of John's revelation which he saw and wrote to seven churches in Asia that we're going to reflect on for the next seven weeks. He was one of those exiles banished for no other reason than his confession in Christ. It's fascinating to me the places that God reveals God's self. It's not just in temples and sanctuaries. It's not just on mountaintops. But God often reveals himself in valleys and cemeteries, in prison cells and dungeons, in exile and distress, where hope is hanging by a thread. This is the place where Christ reveals himself. And so it was for John. While he's in exile, alone and near the end of his rope, while he was, quote, in the spirit, on the Lord's day, this is not Saturday, it's not the Jewish Sabbath, this is resurrection day, on the Lord's day, get this, about the same time that his people on the mainland Are taking communion and saying their prayers for their pastor, (laughs) he has a vision. It's bizarre. When you read it, you wonder if he has some issues. Standing before him among the seven golden lampstands, which by the way represent the seven churches, was one like the Son of Man. It's descriptive. He's wearing a long robe and a sash across his chest, who dresses like that? The king, his head and hair white as wool, white as snow, his eyes flames of fire, his feet burnished bronze, his voice like the sound of a waterfall, and in his mouth the sharp two-edged sword. It sounds a little bit like the Old Testament. It sounds like Daniel's vision of the Ancient of Days. And John was so overcome by this vision that he fell at his feet like a dead man in a trance. And then he felt a hand on his shoulder and he heard a voice in his ear Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. Notice I am. I am the first and last. I am the living one. I was dead and am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of hell and death. Isn't it interesting that those are the same words that we use in the liturgy for a service of death and resurrection? Who is it that John saw? It's the living Christ. It's the exalted Christ And it's not just an apparition. This is not just a hallucination for John. It's an experience. Isn't it interesting that any vision of hope always begins with a vision of Jesus, the living Lord? We call it apocalyptic. It simply means unveiling. It means disclosure. And in the midst of his suffering, he sees divine purpose. One of my African-American pastor friends who's now retired used to say it like this, when you know what you're going to, you can deal with what you're going through. And all of a sudden, John discovers in his isolation, he's not alone. I've been reading a very important book called Them. Have you heard of it? It's written by a senator from Nebraska. His name is Ben Sass. And he's talking about the problem that we have in our own culture of this us and them thing that we constantly play. And it's okay as long as we're in the us, but most of the time when we're criticizing others, them is them and us is us. And he speaks of the political divide, he speaks of the racial, the economic divide. He talks about the opioid crisis and the rise in suicides. Did you know that in our own nation that suicide now has become one of the leading causes of death and he talks about the rise in depression which our social scientists are now saying that at the core of our depression is loneliness the feeling that I'm all alone it's epidemic in our time And John, who's feeling this in exile, the pastor of the church, suddenly has a vision of the one who has scars in his hands, who endured the nails and the thorns, and he's not distancing himself from the lampstands, from the churches. He's right with them. And he has the keys of hell and death Indeed, he is the key, isn't he, for our hope today and tomorrow. Even when life happens and things turn out different from our vision, John says that even in our end is our beginning. I love the hymn by Natalie Sleeth. She wrote it in 1980 when her husband died prematurely. She wrote these words. In our end is our beginning, in our time, infinity. In our doubt, there is believing, in our life, eternity. In our death, a resurrection, at the last, a victory, unrevealed until its season, something God alone can see. But John saw it. God revealed it. And he wrote it down so that you could see it too. Last word. Several years ago, Sherry and I were watching a tennis match on television. It was one of the majors. We love to watch tennis sometimes. And the guy we were pulling for was down. He was getting beat pretty badly. And my wife was very worried. She gets very tense sometimes watching sports. And so oftentimes we'll TVO it or DVR it and watch it later. But I was confident. She said, he can't win. I said, he's going to win. He's going to come from behind. He's got this. He'll come back. She said, I don't see how. I said, watch and learn. He's going to pull it through. Watch and see. Even when he was down two match points, I was confident. She was scared. And he won the thriller that he probably shouldn't have won. And of course, I couldn't resist saying, I told you so. And she was a little suspicious. She said, How did you know? How could you be so confident? And I said, Honestly, she said, Yes. I said, I read it in the paper this morning. (laughs) The match was actually a replay of what happened yesterday. And you know what she said to me? I can't repeat it from here. But it occurred to me later, when you know the outcome of the match, you don't get nearly as anxious when it's being played. News flash. John is writing out a vision whose outcome is clear. The lamb wins. (laughs) The trials are there. Sure, the struggle is real. I don't have to tell. The future seems uncertain and unclear and so fearful, but the Lamb wins. And when you can see the end at the beginning, you don't have to be afraid. When you know what you're going to, you can deal with what you're going through. And that, dear friend... It's called an epiphany, a revelation that's worth getting up for. In Jesus' name, amen.